because I think when you go through something so brutal and challenging, you have no perspective on it because it's you're it's what you're living. You're in that all the mm-hmm. time. And so when you tell somebody and they're like, whoa, hey, wait a second, you need to share this with people because it could help people there. I had a sense of that, mm-hmm. you know, and I felt called to do that. Mm-hmm. But there was also a part of me, too, that because it's so personal and it was so such a dark and challenging time to go mm-hmm. through. There's a part of me that was like, yeah, I'll eventually get around to doing that. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to University of Adversity. You guys, I'm really excited for today's episode. My man, Paul Johnson, PJ, is joining us today. We recorded this episode a few weeks back in Costa Rica. I had the pleasure of living with him and his family, Steph and all the kids. And, you know, there's been a lot of awesome people stay there while I was there. I got a lot of important work done in those six weeks for my book launch and all of that. And, you know, when I first got there to Costa Rica, not when I first got to Costa Rica, when I got to Uvida and stayed with uh, PJ and Steph, PJ told me his story and I didn't know the depth and I was just blown away by the layers of his story. It's freaking crazy and how he was able to get through it and where he's at now. So we decided to do a two part to this episode because it's so long and you know, usually these episodes are max 90 minutes. So this episode, we ended up recording for about three hours. So we, we did it into two and also because the first half of the half of the episode we did in person and I'm not usually set up for in person. So that my battery ran out, but we stopped it at the perfect time for like the before and after. So this will set you guys up for like the context of who PG is, what he created before he got sick and then after, and then all of that stuff for part two. But this was a really, really crazy story, you know, and the success that PJ has been able to create and then how we got sick and then how we got through it with through the Lyme disease with psychedelics. And we'll dive all into that. But like it was, it's really profound. And I, I really encouraged him to get his story out because this thing, his story, like he should be sitting on Joe Rogan. Like he should be telling this story at big scale, bigger than this podcast for sure. And um, I'm really, I was really excited to have him on. So um, if you guys want to watch this on YouTube, it's also available. If you guys aren't subscribed to the podcast, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to this. And if you get value, share it with a friend, tag us or leave us a review. It's always really appreciated. And the part one of this episode is, uh, yeah, all about PJ's life and leading up to it. And then part two will be all the other stuff, all the other juicy stuff that he's gone through. So um, also you guys, before we get into this, we have the University of Adversity Summit coming up May 21st to 23rd. Tickets are now available. Go to my website, lanceecos.com or go to my Instagram. This is going to be a three-day event, personal transformation, healing, human connection with a lot of my past guests. I couldn't have them all, unfortunately. I'm going to be doing these more frequently. It's been a lot of fun. It's been 
very challenging putting it together, but also really rewarding. So we're going to do a batch is going to be probably around, I think between 20 and 30 speakers, there's going to be panels. It's going to be really, really good. It's going to be 99 bucks. Proceeds will go to charity. Profits will go to charity and um, it's going to be, it's going to be powerful and it's going to be one of many. So I don't want you guys to miss out on the first one ever. And I promise you it'll be worth your while. Also, again, thank you to everybody who supported me on the book launch and, um, that book is in progress and we'll let you know when that comes out. So without further ado, get ready for an awesome episode. My man, PJ, Paul Johnson coming right up. Here we go, brother. All right. A little Wim Hof breath action. Yeah. Get us going. Yeah. <laughs> man, that was, uh, it's amazing what that can do for your state. Yeah. And how you can like completely change how you feel. It's got me through some tough times for sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. You've like, it's, it's crazy. Cause like your routine, you're so dialed in on your routine. Yeah. And you know, it's been really cool to watch because it's something that I want to dial in more. Yeah. And it's been one of these things that have been super challenging for me to, to get, you know, like the 4.30 AM to get up and do it. And you've been able to do it. Yeah. How, how have you been able to do it? Like what, how have you been able to like consistently get up and do that? Well, a lot of it goes back to, I mean, first of all, man, I'm just, I'm grateful to be here. <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful to be alive. You know, yeah. uh, I was thinking about it this morning as I was going through my routine, I was just overwhelmed with gratitude sitting here because a year ago, I, I didn't think I was going to make it. Yeah. yeah. And so the routine actually was birthed out of that. Mm. I'd gone through a lot of different routines over my life, but it became a matter of survival. It became a matter of waking up every day. Mm. And it started very, very simple. I had two goals. One, not to kill myself. And two was to take a 15 minute walk around my neighborhood mm. because I was in such a place. I was crippled and paralyzed so often that taking a 15 minute walk was a really big deal. Mm. So when people are starting out looking at creating a routine that's empowering for them, start simple. Mm. You know, I wasn't waking up at four 30. Then I was waking up like when I could move, Yeah, when I could move my body. Mm. So I have a lot of gratitude just being here today and being alive and being able to share some of the story and hopefully helping other people. Because like we talked about, to be of service is the greatest honor. Yeah, man. And for all of you guys, you know, this is Paul's story is so fucking incredible. And dude, when you first told me about it, you know, we were sitting over there and, you know, I hear a lot of stories. I hear a lot of people tell, tell different things and just the, the depth of what you had to go through and how long you've been trying to like be healthy just to feel good and what you had to do to get there. It was, it's in, incredible. And I think everybody needs to hear this story. That's why, like, as soon as you told me, I was like, man, I got to get this guy on the sh like immediately. And it's so powerful because, you know, especially with this show, it's like, I love having these conversations with people that have been able to, do these things and to be able to um, build that resilience, that, that growth, that transformation within themselves 
and to be able to come back and talk about it through story because sometimes people just need permission. One person needs to hear it, you know, from the right person. He could save somebody's life, man. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and to your credit, I mean, your mission to activate human potential and to help people transform their lives. And when you encouraged me to share this story, that was a big deal to me because I think when you go through something so brutal and challenging, you have no perspective on it because it's you're, it's what you're living. You're in that all the mm-hmm. time. And so when you tell somebody and they're like, whoa, hey, wait a second, you need to share this with people because it could help people. There, I had a sense of that, mm-hmm. you know, and I felt called to do that. Mm-hmm. But there was also a part of me too, that because it's so personal and it was so such a dark and challenging time to go mm-hmm. through, there's a part of me that was like, yeah, I'll eventually get around to doing that. Mm. But your encouragement really helped me decide, okay, now's the time. This is the opportunity. Let's share this with the idea. Cause I think when um, the ego gets involved and there's this protective layer around your story and your experience, it's sometimes hard to get out of that. Mm. And you're like, what are people going to think? Cause it's so crazy. Like Sometimes when I hear myself telling the story, I'm like, did this really happen? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's so bananas, right? It's just so out there that <laughs> you wonder how people are going to judge you for it. And uh, that, that was a big part of my resistance to sharing it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people go through as well. It's like, they're so worried about the wrong thing. Like the worried about, you know, who's gonna, what are people going to think? Or like, you know, it becomes about themselves and they forget. And I do this all the time too. It's like, well, who am I not helping by telling, not by not sharing this, right? Because it's like this in a lot of things too, even, you know, with business or anything, as we'll get into, it's like, if you have an idea and you don't do it, you don't know who you're not being able to serve, like who you're robbing from that, that, that gift or whatever it is that you're holding back because you're, you're scared or you're worried. And I, I like, I really love to encourage people to fuck, just step into that and, and, and share it because we don't know who's listening. Right. Yeah. Well, and along the journey, there's always been so many, I've had friends, I've had family, there's been podcasts, there's been books that encouraged and kept me going. Mm. And so to contribute to that conversation is a really big deal. And that's what I had to keep coming back to was, this is not about me. This is Mm. not about my image or how I look or what people think about me. Mm. It's about being of service. How does this story serve our community in a way that helps people get unstuck and out of that dark place? Because sometimes it's just one word or one phrase I used to write down like little quotes or phrases that I read or heard, and I would put them on reminders on my phone and I would have them pop up during the day at mm. different points where, you know, I knew my energy would cycle and uh, usually early in the morning and the afternoons were really challenging times where I had really crushing anxiety and I would have these little quotes and things pop up. Mm. And so maybe there's a snippet or maybe something that I learned that I could pass along to somebody else that just gives them because when you're in that spot and you're just 
trying to survive the day. And living in survival, it's not fun. And it's, I don't recommend it, but sometimes that's where you're at. Mm. Sometimes it's minute by minute, hour by hour. You're just trying to stay alive mm. and you're trying to, whether it's a health thing that's crushing you or whether it's being suicidal and having anxiety and being in so much pain, you don't want to live. There's a, there's a point where you've got to start to get some traction and just, okay, I can get through this next hour. I can get through this next day and I can't worry about tomorrow. Mm. I really just have to focus on today. Mm. And I learned that in, you know, getting sober too, was a big part of my story and taking it day by day is the only way that you can climb out of a cycle of addiction and move into a place of recovery and health. Oh man. All right. So, you know, (laughs) this is for everybody, this is going to be a powerful story and, you know, this isn't for everybody. Like, you know, the, the conversations about deep healing, you know, it's everybody's got their own story. And I just want to put context into this is like, before we get into everything, it's like how much, how many things you tried and how, how much time you put into healing. And it's, it's just so it's hard for me to wrap my head around what you went through. Mm. So I want to kind of take it back and first get some context on your story and just kind of walk us through because you lived a pretty incredible life. We've had some amazing conversations. All of you guys that don't know, I'm with Paul in Costa Rica and Ovida. It's absolutely beautiful. And, you know, we've got to bond and talk about his story and, you know, just the different levels and different layers that you've been through. And I just thought it was just so fascinating that you could literally write a book, a, a movie about it, write a book about it. So <laughs> walk us through, man, like walk us through your journey a little bit, you know, what were you doing before and kind of how you got to the path you did today? Yeah. So a big part of, you know, the story that we want to share today is about the healing uh, experience that I had here in Costa Rica. And it really started probably when I was 11 or 12 years old. Um, I got a tick bite while I was deer hunting with my dad and grandpa. And at the time I didn't really think anything of it, but the area I grew up in Northern California, Sierra Nevadas, um, there's a very uh, heavy Lyme disease population of ticks. Mm. And so a lot of times it'll stay dormant in your system for many years before you even know that you have it. Mm. And there's a lot of misinformation about Lyme disease. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the country that suffer from it. It's a, uh, it's a terrible disease. It's a bacteria that expands rapidly in your system. It mimics all sorts of autoimmune disorders, uh, arthritis. Uh, it gets in your nervous system. It attacks your joints and soft tissue. It can get in your brain because it's a spirouette shape. It's one of the only bacteria that can penetrate the blood brain barrier. And so at the point that I first started having issues, I'd probably had it in my system for 10 years, maybe 12 years. And I started getting pain in my body that was unexplainable. This was about 18 years ago. And I was really into different supplementation and reading and all these sort of things. And so I started exploring different modalities, you know, acupuncture, massage, different types of therapies and, um, things to try to help. And it, and it did help to a certain extent, but my health continued to just deteriorate over time. 
as I was going through this process. And then I had my first surgery in 2003 on my shoulder so from a snowboarding accident. And that's when things started to get really weird because Lyme a lot of times will stay dormant in your system and then it will start to attack you when you're at your weak and most vulnerable. So I started having chronic fatigue, anxiety, uh, different regional pain throughout my body. Uh, my back started hurting, my hips started hurting. And so I was just in pain all the time. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that was like the first round with painkillers too, going through pain medication, having the surgery, recovering. And then I had another dislocation playing basketball. I dislocated the shoulder again and had another surgery, another round of pain medication. And I was able to come off of it, but every time I was a little bit harder. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so going, you know, going forward from there, you know, I, I lived a pretty extreme life at a, a business that was, uh, you know, I owned part of a mortgage bank when I was 26, 27, I was making millions of dollars. <laughs> I was spending millions of dollars living like a rock star. A wolf on Wall Street, man, except doing it, doing it right. <laughs> yeah. It was funny how, how ethical and value oriented we were at, you know, at the office. Yeah. But uh, the hours outside of the office, it was, um, we were raging all, <laughs> all night, you know, all day. Sometimes it would carry yeah. over, but it was a wild time. I mean, that experience, not a lot of people have, I've got to just drop six figures into their checking account to just to spend and to play with every month. And I got to live that experience and I'm grateful for it in so many ways because it taught me so much about what really is valuable, you know, people and relationships and making an impact. It makes a big difference. You know, when you lose purpose, I mean, those were some of the darkest times that I ever had, Yeah, you know, waking up, you know, just blown out from the night before blood running down my face from doing so much cocaine and having on the surface, everything people would wish for, mm. but having just this deep ache and this deep hole in my soul every day that I couldn't fill up with anything, nothing I could buy, no, no amount of sex, no amount of partying could fill up yeah. the void that I had. And I also recognize now that there was a lot of physical pain that I was masking with the drugs, you know, with the prescription, with the alcohol. Mm. Um, there was things that I was trying to do to keep myself going and to keep driving forward, hoping that I would reach a place where I would be okay. Mm. You know? But it was just a deep insecurity and a deep feeling of unworthiness and really a, a lack of self-love. Like a lot of my story too is just, yeah. Where did that come from? Because I, you know, we, we went through a lot of the same things, me being in the bars and a lot of late nights, early mornings, you know, yeah. doing, you doing Coke, drinking until stupid o'clock every day. <laughs> and then like this empty feeling. And you know, what's been interesting, bro, is like, for me lately is trying to figure out like, where did that start? You know, where did, where did things, where did things get squirrely? You know, what, where on the timeline, as a teenager, as a kid, it's really interesting to go back yeah. and, and figure that out. And I got, did that a lot through Eric Godsey's, you know, journaling and course like that is to like figure out yep. why the fuck do we do these things? Like, why did that start? 
Yeah. Right. And have you ever thought about like the moment where things started to get like that? Was there a, or was it sort of like right from you're a kid or how did that all? Yeah. I definitely thought about it a lot. Been in counseling for 10 years, unpacking a lot of that. Mm. And the themes are always very constant and, and similar. Mm. You know, I was in a coaching program with 300 of the top bankers and finance people in the country, people that make 20 million plus dollars a year taxable income. And it's, it was amazing to me that 95% of us had this very deep sense of unworthiness mm -hmm. or lack of acceptance. When you're in sales, you're getting people to say yes every day, yeah. multiple times a day. And so when I was a kid, um, my parents are amazing people and my dad's a pastor and him and my mom started a church when, when I was really, really young and growing up in that environment was really challenging for me. Um, in a lot of ways, because every parent, you know, I have three kids is doing their absolute best. You know, my dad came from a really mm. brutal background of abuse and he created a, a wonderful life and he still has a great life and he's a great person. Some of the teaching and the belief system, you know, with um, the way that we kind of looked at ourselves, like identity wise, uh, was really difficult because we, we saw God as a very harsh judging uh, person. Mm. And so as a kid, you're really ingraining that I'm either on the perfect path, doing the will of God, or I'm a scumbag, basically. And so there's this huge inner critic that gets formed in that. And I don't think anybody really knew at that point, you know, what, what was going on. I, I certainly didn't. Then in addition to that, <laughs> I went to, excuse me, <laughs> I went to a uh, private school and um, my parents, you know, we were always very, um, you know, poor growing up. All the time and money went into the church and ministry and honestly helping other people. My dad would give the last dollar out of his pocket to feed a family or to help, help people. It's one of the most beautiful gifts that him and my mom is like the kindest, most generous soul. So thoughtful would give me what was that example of like, Hey, if you've been blessed with something, give it, give it away because it always, not even with the expectation of it coming back, but it always comes back. And I got to witness that and we were always taken care of. We always had just enough. And um, there was a lot of beautiful people in our lives because of the generosity and care and kindness that they had. I went to a private school. So our family was very conservative. So I went to a Baptist school, but we were way more conservative than the school was. On top of that, you know, these pointy years that I have, I've kind of grown into them, I think. But when I was a kid, they were the same size that they are right now. It on TV was Star Trek. So I just remember the first day walking into kindergarten and these kids on the playground were like, look, Spock's coming. Here's Spock. And I was just, I felt so much shame and embarrassment because of how I looked. 
And so that, that shame and that unworthiness and that lack of acceptance really, it was anchored in so many different ways. And we all have an opportunity to choose that belief system. And the reality is it serves us in a certain way. You know, for me there, it would go through a stage of like, I would feel sad and hurt, but then I would feel resentful and angry. And that anger would give me adrenaline and that adrenaline I would use to channel into being hyper productive, hyper overachiever. Like I'm going to prove those mother, you know, I'm going to prove those people wrong. I'm going to show them what's up. And, you know, even as a kid, as an innocent kid, that was something I had an edge to me. I had a dark shadow side that I was very careful to hide from the world, but it was there. And whenever I needed to reach in and get that power or that edge to like hit into something that was there for me. And that's actually um, something that they found. Uh, Tim Grover wrote a book about Michael Jordan and all these guys that he trained with. And he calls it the cleaner. And he said, you know, there's a dark energy that him and Kobe and Dwayne Wade and all these guys could tap into that only certain people have. And I found that to be true in business. You know, I was able to carry that into business and be a powerhouse at 20 years old because of that. So I think that, you know, going back to that without going too much more into it, a lot of it was centered around, I'm out of place at my school. I never felt complete acceptance in the religion, the spiritual community that I was in. People loved me. That wasn't the case, but I never felt like I was living perfectly. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because, you know, again, like when you're a kid, it doesn't have to be something super, super serious to create a weird kink in the timeline, a kink in your, uh, you know, cause I was the same. I, I remember I got moved, I moved across the country and I went from being a cool kid to a loser mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to process it. You know, I went from living in a city where I grew up till I was like 11 older brother. I could do whatever. I was just like, I didn't know what it was like to, to get a, a bullied, you know, cause I kind of did it. And then I almost, when I, when I moved across the country, I got bullied and man, did it fuck me up like grade seven? Like I didn't know how to process it. It was like, it was so hard. And, you know, through those years, you like start to, you lose confidence and it never went away from me. It was always like, and that's what I'm realizing. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. It wasn't until booze came in where it's like, oh, I can invent something new here. Yeah. I can like be a new person and not, and, and like get out of that weird feeling of uncomfortable feelings. Right. I, I was always trying to overcompensate for it. A lot of times those big brash bully personalities are just the most insecure people you've ever met. Yeah. Once you break through it and you break down and I was like more of a passive aggressive bully. Like I had my crew of people that I protected and loved on. And then there was like a harsh reality outside of that circle that I was there to enforce, Yeah, you know, and there's things that, I definitely am not proud of as a kid, but at the same time, a lot of the stuff that we did was community oriented. And so I spent every Saturday and Sunday going door to door, helping families without transportation, 
get to church, organizing events for kids. And I loved it, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it was an escape for me from the reality of, you know, being in church all the time, being in environment all the time that, you know, sometimes I had so much social anxiety, like when I go back and see the people there, I love it. And I love them. And I, my heart just melts when I'm around them, but I had such deep social anxiety. I would literally shake. Sometimes my body would tremble and I would just be so uncomfortable. I remember just sometimes going out to my parents' car after church and just sitting in the car and just like Mm. trying to calm down because I was so wired up, Mm. you know? And I think some of that is, uh, those, those deep psychological deficits that I had. Um, and then, you know, in addition to that, there was a belief system in our religion of spanking, you know, and I think, um, a lot of people, uh, have differing opinions on this, of course. Uh, but with spanking, I think one of the psychological traumas that happens to the kid is that, especially if it's a circumstance that is like very subjective where it's somebody's word against someone else and you don't, you're not believed, but you still get punished, Ah. which happened to me a few times. And so there was, it undermined the trust that I had in myself where I was like, well, maybe I am a bad person. Ah. And that's where, that's Ah. where that transfer, you know, shame and addiction are completely linked together Mm. because there's people that they make mistakes and, there's guilt because they, they made a mistake or they did something bad, but shame is an identity that you take in. You take in this identity of shame and you're like, I'm a bad person. I deserve to be punished. I deserve this. And when you go into that place, it's also super isolating, which mirrors addiction. So when you go into that isolated, dark place, that's where addiction really manifests in balloons out of control. Mm. And so I think the spanking caused some trauma for me where my nervous system, uh, my belief system about myself, and then you're receiving this punishment from your caregiver, somebody that loves you. And in their mind, they're doing something loving. They're, they're saying, Hey, I want to provide you a better way, a better path, a path of discipline. And honestly, I wouldn't trade my upbringing for anything. Yeah. That, that's the, like, that's the crazy thing. So I don't want to sound like I'm blaming or that because my kids are going to grow up and they're going to look at me and there's going to be stuff that they're going to have to go to counseling about. I know it. And my, my hope is that they just know that I had sincerity and love and authenticity and I was doing the absolute best that I could for them. Mm. And there's still going to be stuff that they have to work through for sure. And that's going to shape them in a certain way one of the things I was given was incredible discipline and work ethic. The work ethic that my parents displayed is just, I, I still being in business and doing all this stuff. I still never met anybody that is a harder worker than them. And so that gave me the opportunity to say, there's always room for improvement. There's always an opportunity to make something better, including myself. And so even though I was carrying these things with me, I had this incredible engine to always be working. I started reading like, I started reading like business and different books that people thought were odd when I was in sixth grade. I would go to the library and I would look up like strange things about like 
how much different industries made and how to do things better and this and that. And it was just, people were like, what are you doing? That's so weird. Hmm. But I had just a really deep interest in that and being, you know, growing up poor as well. Um, there was also this acknowledgement when I looked at the social context, the cool kids in school, their dad had a Porsche, you know, they had a pool yeah. parties at their house and I saw, oh, there's different pathways to having acceptance. Mm. Even within churches and religion, you know, there's acknowledgement. I mean, people that are seen as successful, it's just a societal thing. A lot of it to me is just an American concept of success mm. and capitalism. And it's not that those things are bad. It's just, it's a one way of measuring things you know, money and energy and resource is only one way of measuring things mm -hmm. that when that becomes the only thing, that's when it becomes toxic in my opinion. And having lived it and known it, I know that it doesn't bring happiness or fulfillment. Mm. Yeah. Let's go deeper into that because so, you know, you had all the success, all the money, all the things, and you're obviously, you know, in pain and when when was it where you realized that shit needed to change you know like where at what point of that you know driving for success the career you know masking the pain like where did you at what point was it just getting so bad that you knew that you had to switch out of that that's a good question when i got into business you know funny enough, I really got into business when I was a kid, we went door to door, like mm. inviting people to church and influencing and connecting with people. And it was a beautiful way to grow up and learn. And then I started doing landscaping and painting curb addresses with a buddy of mine to make money. And when I got into business, it just took off right away. Uh, my first job was in a call center for Nightingale Conant. They had Tony Robbins records on the wall because Earl Nightingale had helped him publish like his first audio mm -hmm. recording. And I was, they're like, you're the first person we've hired under 30. Cause you sound like you've been chain smoking for 40 years. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know? And so I had, I was in college, but I was doing this job and I was having a lot of success. I was like making awesome money. And then I moved home to California because I was living in Chicago at the time. And when I went to California, I looked for a sales job and I got into finance and right out of the gate, I was crushing it. And so I had like a 10 year run where every year I was just doubling, doubling, doubling till I was over a million dollars. And so when you're in that intoxicating flow, there's a, there's like kind of a deep gut instinct of like, something's kind of off here. Like, I was still, I was getting coached. I was reading, I was doing trainings. I was going to events. I was doing all this stuff during that time. And I felt like something needed to change, but I didn't really know what, what it was at that time. So it was really like when I went through uh, the, between 2006 and 2008, I went through a really um, crushing divorce and it was, you know, mainly due to my bad behavior. Uh, I was out of control in so many ways. Nevertheless, it was 
devastating to go through. And it also hurt that image and that sense and that feeling of I had so much respect in my community and all these things about me were coming out and it was really hard. And at the same time, I was still crushing in business, making a lot of money. And I started filling that in with more excessive partying, more women, more drugs, more alcohol. And my body started breaking down. I started having some really terrible pain and stuff, but I was able to, I had the money and I had the people around me to continue to mask that. So about 2008, when we had sold our bank to a hedge fund and then the hedge fund went bankrupt and took all of our licenses, took all of our money. And so I went from, in the span of about 12 months, I went from living in my dream neighborhood as a kid, custom built home, cars, boats, all this stuff um, to losing everything. And when I went through that phase, I really started to notice the pain in my body and I'd gone through a couple surgeries and things weren't quite right, but that's when I really kind of started to hit the first rock bottom, mm. so to speak. Mm. Yeah. So what were you doing to like, like where, you know, how did you start to navigate? Like when, when did the sobriety kick in? Yeah. At that point I thought, man, I should probably dial things back a little bit. And as the money so was gone, like, yeah. Cause, cause like I can relate so much, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, you know, and what you were saying earlier, like, you know, you should be doing something else, but things are just kind of fun. And it's like, yeah, it's like, well, it's good enough. It's, it's, it's working good. well enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm like, still having fun sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I think I told you, I remember the first time my bookkeeper came to me and she was like, Hey, we need to tighten some things up. Your party budget of 30,000 a month. We got to, we got to cut it down to 20,000. And I was, I was furious. Like this is how delusional and in my ego I was at the time where I was just like, this is preposterous. We have to find another way, you know? And that's, that was just the mentality that I was in that, yeah, that Wolf of Wall Street, because you're you're deluded, but you're you're on the drugs and then you're surround, you know, I'm surrounding myself with people that are telling me you're getting validation. Dude, you're the best, you're the greatest, you can do no wrong. And so you start to believe you drink your own Kool-Aid and you're like, hey, you're literally the wolf on Wall Street. You're literally living that life. Literally living that life. <laughs> Except you're on the east, you're like the LA, you're the California one. <laughs> Northern Cal, a lot of, a lot of San Francisco time, LA and Seattle and all that. But yeah, there was, there was that realization. So for me, I wish sometimes I was the kind of person that the one wake up call was the thing that it was, but generally like Steph is that way. My wife, you know, she, she had a bad experience in LA when she was modeling and doing stuff. And she was just like, change your life the next day. Mm. For me, like I have to get beaten down and broken and pulverized a lot of times. And that's something with awareness that um, part of my practices are, are about that is coming into awareness and being aligned every day instead of just charging forward relentlessly until I'm so broken that I have no choice but to surrender and to mm -hmm. choose a new path. 
So for me, it was a long process, man. I knew I needed to get sober. I didn't understand anything about addiction, even though I was surrounded by addicts. I didn't know anyone that had gotten sober. I'd gotten a DUI and I'd gone to a class that you have to go to. And that was the first time I started learning about addiction, but it, it wasn't me. I wasn't an addict, you know, like that wasn't, yeah. I didn't identify as somebody that needed to get sober, but I would dial things back just enough to get stuff under control for a little while. And then it would cycle back up. Yeah. And so I went into a really, a really dark season of depression. I was living in uh, a trailer park with uh, my girlfriend's grandparents let, let us borrow a trailer park uh, or a mobile home to live in a trailer park. What year was this? Just so this was context. like 2008, 2009. And then I got a call from a buddy who had started an investment firm that was doing some really wild out there stuff, but he had made like a hundred million dollars. And he said, Hey, we want to hire you come in and do this uh, project with us. You know, we're going to pay you like a million bucks right out of the gate. So I moved to Sacramento and I was working with him. And then a few weeks in the feds came and took everything. They weren't doing anything fraudulent, but the group they were working with at Wells Fargo was doing some fraudulent stuff with collateralizing assets and all that. And all of his money got seized and everything, you know, we're shopping for Ferraris. We're going through all this stuff. And uh, now we're broke again. So now we're, I'm just like, wow, this is brutal. So I'm living there with him for a while, uh, trying to figure out what my next step is. Just drinking, smoking pot every day, taking pills, because my body was really, I was in a lot of pain. I had broken my toe. My shoulder was jacked up again. And so I was in a lot of pain and I was just going through a, uh, a process of numbing out every day and just treading water. And that was, that was not a fun season of my life, you know, but I, I started to try to listen and read and put some positive things back into my mind because the group I was around was like deeply into conspiracy theories. And it was very, it was a really negative environment around conspiracies. And so I knew that that wasn't going to serve me. And so I started to work on, okay, what are some things I can listen to and read to give me some ideas about what to do with my life at this point. And around that time, the CEO that we had started the company with called me up and said, Hey, there's a hedge fund that's engaged us. We're thinking about starting uh, another company and we're wondering if you would be interested in uh, participating with, at some level. And they were based out of San Diego and I love San Diego. And I was like, yeah, I definitely would be interested in doing that. And so he's like, okay, you know, uh, keep, keep me uh, posted on what you're up to and I'll keep you posted on what I'm up to. And so after a few months, uh, I got the call from him saying, Hey, do you want to come down and interview to be vice president of this new venture that we're starting out? So at that point I was, uh, deeply addicted to cocaine and pain pills. In fact, before the interview, uh, I went in the bathroom, took some pills, did some Coke, 
had some tequila in my backpack, chugged some and went in and, um, they were interviewing seven or eight different people for the job. And they ended up offering me the job on the spot and said, Hey, when can you start? And I'll be back here on Monday. And so that brought me to San Diego, no, November, uh, 2009. And that was the best thing that happened. I didn't really know anybody. I knew Steph's mom. I had known her for about five years and she was the one that had kind of mentioned to the CEO, like, Hey, I heard Paul's thinking about moving to San Diego. And, um, that's where I got the call from him was that connection. And so, um, when I moved down there, it was a much better situation for me. I was around some different people. Uh, I started working on my health, but, uh, I was in, I was in a really, really bad cycle of alcohol and cocaine and pain pills. And, uh, and I was really lucky to be alive at that point, but I was also deeply, deeply sick. Yeah. So I had an experience that following spring, there was a evangelist that I had done some work with in the past who went to Central America. What's an evangelist just for for everybody that doesn't know? Evangelist is like, um, they're kind of like a pastor or a, a preacher that goes to different parts of the world or different, could be different parts of the country. And they share the gospel. They share about Jesus. They share about their faith, the faith and that the religion they have. And this guy was such a beautiful soul. He had really been a positive light in my life. And he did a lot of wonderful work in the communities that he went to with the orphanages and schools. And he would really, they would go in and spend like a year really mapping out how do we give this community something tangible that's going to last a long time. And they would have a team on the ground working. And then at the end, they would do this big festival of celebration, celebrating all the achievement of the community. And usually like the governor would come and like really big people. And they would have 30, 40, 50. I think we had 60,000 people at one of them sitting on the stage next to the governor. And there's 60,000 people out in front of us. Well, I really didn't want to go to this in the condition I was in. And I'd kind of got roped into it in a strange way because he knew the CEO of the company, he knew me, and he invited me to come down and speak at this business conference they were doing. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm in the middle of this startup project. I just don't have time for it. But I really didn't want to leave like the drugs and alcohol and be down in that situation. Well, you mentioned it to the CEO. Hey, I think Paul's thinking about, I was like, I'll think about it. And so he tells the CEO and the CEO walks by my desk and goes, Hey, I heard you're going to be going with Mike down to, I was like, yeah, but we got this project and this going. He goes, man, you can take a week off. No problem. And so I'm like, yeah, I don't really want to spend the money and do this. And he was like, Hey, let's call him right now. I'll give him my credit card. And I was like, Oh, I said, well, I heard we're past the deadline. So of course we go in his office, he calls and they're like, yeah, you're past the deadline, but you know, let's get, um, let's get our director on the phone. So they get the director on the phone and she goes, hang on a second. Oh, Hey, there's a flight going out and you guys can, you can link up with us and this thing. And next thing I know, dude, I'm down in Nicaragua, Mm. uh, with a bunch of people that are just there to serve and help people, beautiful souls, great people. 
and I'm, you know, I'm detoxing hard. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in bad shape and it's Nicaragua is the hottest place I've ever been. I don't know if it was my physical condition, but it was like 98 degrees with 95% humidity. A heat index was like 120 and I'm just suffering, man. It was, mm. it was rough, but I started to come out of it and I started to get into a better place. And at the end of that trip, I really was feeling like things were churning for me. And, uh, I had met this guy who had a compound out on the coast, um, this massive house on the beach. And so I organized a trip to take everyone out. It was like our only off day. We'd been working hard all week. And as we're out there, I'm kind of showing off. There's some girls in the group. I'm kind of trying to show off to I'm like, I'm from California. I know how to swim in the ocean. I get caught in a riptide. Mm. And Nicaragua has some of the most beautiful, pristine waves you've ever seen because there's an offshore breeze from this giant lake. Mm. And I get sucked in a riptide. And there's all these people in the Midwest and stuff. They don't know anything about the ocean. or So I'm getting sucked out. They're walking on the beach and I'm going away and they're going away. And my ego and pride was still so big that I couldn't call out for help, you know? And my body, my body starts to shut down. I mean, I just detoxed. My muscles start spasming. My shoulders locking up. I can barely swim. And I'm like, I'm going to drown. You know, I'm, I'm about to be, this is it. I'm, I'm toast. And I'll never forget. I kind of just like floated back and looked up and not that God's in the sky. Cause I believe he's, he's all around us and God's spirit is within us and around us and in everything. But I've just said, you know, it's pretty silly that I've gone through all this stuff that I have and I couldn't even call out for help. I couldn't even ask you for help. I've got enough energy in me to swim one more time and then I'm going to sink because I could barely hold myself up in the water. And I said, I just, I want to go out on good terms. I'm going to, I'm surrendering all of it. And I'm thanking you for all of this journey I've been on. I've got wow. to live this incredible life. I have beautiful family and friends. I got to serve here this week and get to see a vision of hope and inspiration. And thank you for that. Thank you that I got to go out this way, you know? And so I started paddling as hard as I could. And it's the weirdest thing there was this moment where a wave caught me and I landed on the beach and I don't really remember what happened in between. I felt like something caught me and threw me and I hit the beach and I was just on the ground shaking and trembling for a long time. Cause by the time I got up, the people were like way up the beach from me. And so I made it out and that was another moment where I had an opportunity to say, I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. I've survived yet another incident in my life. And so I started moving forward. And that's really where I started learning. I joined a group and I started learning about sobriety and I started learning about addiction. And that's where I started to identify some of the cycles in my life that were really not serving me any longer. And that were causing me a lot of pain and causing me a lot of sadness and and I started to get help. And there was a church that I was going to 
flood church in San Diego and uh, pastor Matt Hammett is a, it's just a beautiful man, such a great heart. And he was one of the first people that I could tell my whole story to and just feel zero judgment, just feel complete acceptance. And he was just in my corner from day one, just like, whatever you need, you call me, you text me. And he has a huge church, like several thousand people. And he just would introduce me like, Hey, I think this guy, Adam could be somebody that could be a real ally for you. And this lady, Cheryl, who ended up being my counselor, he introduced me to these people that just rallied around me and started helping me. And that's where I started to inch my way forward and learn a new way of living. Beautiful, man. So you start, you were still living in a lot of pain though. Yeah. Right. So I, I want to kind of dive in to, you know, where that started to get really bad and yeah. like that situation where like it was becoming unbearable, unbearable because yeah you know, which will take us into your healing journey because yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's incredible to, to, to hear, but even that you say like, it's like your body needed to know that it had to go through like the hardest depths of hell in order to like, why is that? Why, you know what I mean? It's, it's so interesting because it's like some of us know that, but it's a story too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. You know, so walk us through like where that pain, because I know you kind of had it all along, but I know like you, you had another bump in with Lyme disease, right? It got worse. Yeah. It got a lot worse. And I think a lot of the pain too, psychosomatic is a controversial thing for, for a lot of people because chronic pain is real. And if your brain is telling you you're in pain, you're in pain, but there are some elements of self-love and there are some elements of not loving yourself enough to get help or really having the faith to believe that you can get healthy that really come into play. So in 2010, I met Steph. I was sober. I was in the best place of my life. We got married after two and a half months. We were pregnant a month later. And my, you know, my son Asher was born in August of 2011 and I was still drinking and doing some other things, but I was, I was in a pretty managed state at that time, but I didn't feel great. You know, I was probably 30 pounds overweight. My energy wasn't great. I was a vice president of, of this bank. I was making great money. I had like 500 salespeople on my team. I had gone through some really incredible transformation in business. And I'd learned this whole executive side of the business that I'd always been in sales. So I'd learned this whole other element but I was traveling 14 to 16 days a month, you know, drinking, eating, and my body was just getting worse and worse. So about four months, um, you know, February, 2012, I finally stopped drinking. And that was the last time I drank. I just had my nine year, um, you know, birthday. Congratulations. Yeah. You were here. Yeah, and it was yeah, cool. It was, to, awesome. it was cool to celebrate with you. That's six months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's just really, there's so many things that don't serve us. And I, you know, I have friends that can have a glass of wine and stuff. And I tell them, man, I celebrate you. If you can do that and honor yourself and honor the people around you, that's beautiful. I have zero issue with totally that. I agree. And so it's really about what's serving you in that time, in that season. And I really wanted to, my son, 
Asher really gave me some deep motivation because a lot of my family, extended family, not my parents, but their parents and uh, grandparents had struggles with alcohol, alcoholism um, in my extended family is very, was very prevalent and still is to some extent. And so I, I, um, I stopped drinking and I really wanted to be an example to my son and just be like, Hey, if there's something you're dealing with, that's giving you the life that you don't want. And I had a great life, but I wasn't, I had anxiety. I was really unhappy. I was overweight. I didn't have the life that I wanted. I wanted to show that you can have that. It's available to you. You can step into that and you could choose it. And I did it. And it was really, really difficult because socially I had built this massive network around food and drink and, you know, just socially it was, I went into this very awkward, difficult time. And it was within, uh, within a few months of that, I also decided to leave the executive world and go back into sales, commission only sales, because I was away from my family all the time and I wanted to be with them. And I knew I could sell, but I didn't have any kind of client base and I knew it was going to be hard, but I started grinding. I got a great business coach, uh, Rick Ruby with the core, uh, took me in as a charity case guy charges 30,000 a year for his coaching, probably more now. And, um, he heard my story and he had compassion and he took me in as a, as somebody to coach and teach. And he helped me get to 250,000 my very first year, but my body with the stress started going haywire. And I remember the very first time that I was crippled in pain. I was on my couch. I got up, I went to the bathroom and my back spasmed so hard that I couldn't stand up. And I, my father-in-law was over having dinner. Steve Parker is one of the most incredible humans on the planet. And he had to come in and carry me out of the bathroom. Into, and there was no position I could get in that was comfortable. It felt like there was a knife shoved in my back, just getting twisted with electrical currents shooting up and down my body. It was my sciatic. And that was the first time that I just had really severe crippling pain. And I'd had back pain and I had back issues, but nothing like this. I mean, this was just a level I didn't even know was possible. And so progressively over the next, um, the next few years, I would have these flare ups and they were getting worse. And I went to doctors, I went to chiropractors, I went to acupuncture, I went to different holistic healers. I tried different herbs. I tried tons of different things to try to cope with and deal with the pain all the while running a business that was growing at breakneck pace, building a team, running a business. And I was on the way to um, within a few short years, having a better business than I'd ever had before mm. working less hours had a smaller team, but we were super tight and efficient and effective and we're just crushing it. And then I started getting sick. I started just, it would be like, it would be like the flu, but not the flu. 
I would get fevers, I have stomach issues. Um, I just felt sick most of the time. Hmm. And sometimes what did they think it was really, really sick. What did they think that was? Uh, you got a virus or you got a, it's your allergies or, yeah. you know, oh, we're checking for mold. We're checking, right. we're checking all this stuff. Like no, nothing. I mean, I can't tell you how many doctors I've seen hundreds of doctors, hundreds of specialists, hundreds of therapists. Of just clueless too. Yeah. I mean, and it's difficult when somebody has something very complicated to really figure out. And Lyme disease is a very hard thing to diagnose yeah. because the bacteria is very smart. It can create a biofilm and disguise itself within a healthy cell of your body. So when you're getting tested, it doesn't get picked up on the test. So during this time, I had a, a, another shoulder surgery. Um, I'm getting injections. I'm staying away from pain medication because I know that's a bad deal for me. Even after my surgery, uh, I was only on like maybe three days. Slippery slope. Yeah. And I didn't want to mess around with it. But my health just was deteriorating, deteriorating. And then um, I think it was 2016, we had moved into, you know, at this point, we have three kids, Scotian, Griffin, uh, my daughter, my youngest son. We moved into a beautiful new home. And about three or four days, this was actually March 2016. We move in the house. I'm sweeping in the kitchen and my back flares up again. And this time I'm crippled for like five days. Like I can't move. I can't, I can barely walk. I can't sit. So I go down to a doctor and, you know, I've got this thriving business. I just bought this house. I've got three kids. I'm like, my wife stays home with the kids. She's working on her music. And I'm just like, I got to figure out how to get back to work, you know? So they put me on some tramadol. They did some x-rays, which I don't know why they do x-rays for those kind of injuries, but they always do an x-ray. Uh, the therapist I was seeing for my shoulder rehab, I started seeing him to, to do back rehab. Hmm. And it helped a lot. But I was still always kind of like, just a misstep or a move away from a flare up that would be crippling. Right. And so I got better for about a month and then it flared up again. And then I got better for a month and then it flared up again. And then it was two weeks. Hmm. And then every two to four weeks I would be in crippling pain. And that went on for three and a half years. I couldn't drive. I couldn't sit for more than 10 or 15 minutes without being in excruciating pain. I ended up getting, uh, I'd seen a bunch of different surgeons and finally, you know, it's a, such a long process to get any of this stuff figured out, but finally I get an MRI and they're like, what'd you do to your back? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, it hurts. What do you mean? Your L3, L4, 5 discs have hundreds of tears on them. And the tears, when you sit, the discs compress and it leaks fluid into your nerve roots, which goes in to the sciatic. And on the MRI, there's like a little black cloud. They said, that's a chemical reaction 
from the fluid interacting with your nerves. Oh, wow. And the doctor, this really wonderful doctor uh, that a friend of mine introduced me to, he was the third one I'd seen. He goes, listen, this is such a rare condition. He's like, I can't even imagine how much pain you're in. This is one of, he's like, this is something you kind of just read about in a book, but you never see. And I've never seen it in 20 years. He said, the only surgical option is to remove the discs, put in artificial discs, put in steel rods and fuse it together. And he said, honestly, that's something we do for 80 year old people, you know, not people that are 40 years old. So I'm hearing a lot of things about stem cells. You should look into if there's anybody that could do stem cell and try that first, because if you do this other surgery, which I can do for you, you are literally going to be laid out in a bed for six months. Then you start your rehab and it's going to be a grueling, brutal process. And I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And you're going to have limited mobility and stuff the rest of your life. And then every 10 years, you have another surgery. Wow. So then I'm on the search for a stem cell guy. You know, my good buddy, Roberto Monaco, who's a business coach and a one, like one of my best friends, great guy. He married one of Stephanie's best friends and her dad was a stem cell researcher. And he told me about stem cells, like, Hey, this is definitely something you should look into. Check it out. Then through another friend of a friend, I heard about a doctor in San Diego who was a, a neurospine surgeon that had just started using stem cells. He'd done like three or four treatments. They took it out of your hip and injected into your back, uh, into the discs, if you had blown discs. So I met him. Several more months went by. I'm on pain medication around the clock just to function a little bit. I'm still working. I had to hire a driver to drive me around because I couldn't drive my own car. And I was still working and we were still doing really well. Our business was, was smoking. We were crushing. But now I'm deeply addicted to pain medication because it'd been, you know, three years I'm in this process. So I get the stem cells and they make it worse before they get better because it creates a biological response and there's inflammation throughout your body. And it made a big improvement, but I was still in a lot of pain and I was still on pain medication. And there was a, probably a brief period of time where I cycled off or I was really low. And, um, I was my, I didn't have the sciatic pain anymore and I haven't had it since. Thank God. Uh, the most excruciating pain besides deep emotional pain that I've ever been through. And so I'm really grateful for that procedure because I didn't have to get my spine fused together, but they still couldn't figure out what was going on. They're checking other things. They had, had some stuff in my mid back, but it wasn't enough. And then they sent me to another surgeon and they found some stuff in my hip because I was having really severe hip pain that would go into my low back. So I ended up having hip surgery. And at this point, I'm just like, it's bad. I'm taking stimulants every day. You know, I'm taking like modafinil type of anti-narcolepsy drugs to stay sharp so I could work, so I could make money, so I could keep going. 
I'm taking pain medication. Now I'm taking beyond the prescribed dose because it's just cycling worse to where now even just a regular dose wasn't enough to keep me going. And so I started looking for an off-ramp, like how do I get off of this cycle? And that's where I found this clinic in Mexico that did some really incredible holistic treatments, IVs, lasers. And I connected with Jennifer, who's a wonderful person. And she had a deep sympathy for my story. And I was just like, honestly, I don't know anymore. I've been so messed up and on so much pain medication for so long. I have no clue if what my body is really telling me because you lose touch with it. You're numbed out, but there's also a condition that pain medication creates. I don't recall the name of it right now, but there's a syndrome where you can start to send pain signals, phantom pain signals to your body that you don't really have, or it amplifies the pain that you do have. So you might have level three pain, but it feels like a seven or an eight because when you're on prescription pain meds for a long time, it changes your nervous system, your opiate receptors. It changes all this stuff to where now your body is interpreting things completely different than what it naturally would interpret them as. So I really want to give my body a chance to see what it was like off a of pain medication. So I went to the clinic and, um, they started detoxing me and that's a whole crazy episode in and of itself. I mean, things got really, really wild down there because I was so toxic. I was so sick. I just remember for probably a couple years, but especially that last six to nine months going to bed every night and just wondering if I was going to wake up because I had so much uh, medication in my system that I knew my respiratory system might fail or just, you know, I might just stop breathing at any moment. And I would just lay in bed with deep anxiety next to stuff. And just, this might be the last night for me. I might not wake up in the morning. And then if I did wake up, I would be in just, uh, when I did wake up, I would be in excruciating pain, uh, suffocating anxiety and starting to feel really hopeless that I would ever get better. Yeah. What was her, like, how was she doing during this? Cause that's tough to see. Like how, oh, I mean, like, you know, like what a, what, um, a challenging situation. I mean, it just tore her apart because she hated seeing me in pain and yet I'm going from event to event to event, hoping it's going to get better, hoping this next thing is going to change it. This next thing is going to fix it and just not able to be really um, healthy, you know, and she was very encouraging and affirming in so many ways because she was just like, you still show up for your kids. You still show up for me. I would still take her on date nights. I'd still do stuff with the kids, but she knew how much pain I was in and how much I was suffering. I was suffering 24 seven. I was never not in a just state of absolute deep pain and suffering all the time. 
And so it, it broke her heart and it, it, you know, it was wearing her down to see me go through this. And she was just like, she's like, listen, this house, this stuff, this business, this money, none of it matters if you're not healthy and okay. Like she really, we had done a trip to Costa Rica and she wanted to move. She was like, when you're in Costa Rica, you were the happiest and healthiest I've ever seen you. We need to move there. And I was like, I can figure this out. I can keep this stuff going. Like I've worked so hard to rebuild this business after being crushed and losing it all. I was just like right back there. And so my identity and my ego was still so attached to being successful and having the stuff and looking and being a certain way, dude, there was, there was such a deep attachment to it. It prolonged my suffering. It prolonged my pain because I wasn't willing to completely let go and really go into it. Like I wasn't even willing to like take a week or two to go to the clinic. Like I put it off. I'm like, Hey, we can do it at this time in the fall when things are slower. And I could have easily died. I probably should have, you know, the combination, the cocktail of things I was taking every day to keep going was absolutely not sustainable. I wasn't. Did you have a lot of suicidal thoughts? You know, at that point, uh, I, I can't imagine because I can't imagine like what you would have been going through because you're in so much pain that like, obviously you don't want that to happen, but I mean, as a human, it's like, yeah, you know, we're all human. We have these thoughts cause we're in so much pain. Right. Was that, how was that yeah. for you? I was kind of resigned to the fact that I was going to die. Oh, I, I had, I'd taken out like 3 million in insur- life insurance on me and I'd set certain things up because, wow, really, you know, and I would just tell her sometimes like, Hey, this is what you need to do if I don't wake up or, you know, I, this is what I, you need to do if I, if I die, like, and you know, of course, whether that, I mean, I was well-meaning in that, but, and I was trying to do my best in that circumstance, but everybody set up in case, right. uh, You know, I wanted to make sure that they were okay, but she's like, the best way to make sure we're okay is for you to be okay. Like (laughs) not give us like a wad of cash to live on, but actually get better. And Mm, I felt like I was trying everything that I knew, but I was trying it, but while keeping kind of both things going at the same time. So the clinic, I detoxed and I was stupid. I mean, I was like, I've detoxed before. I, I don't need to wait. Cause they were like, had a protocol and a treatment like, Hey, you know, next Wednesday, we're going to start you on this. And then like, I went cold Turkey. And that's when I got really, that's when my head went sideways. I got, I was, I had insomnia I was staring in the mirror, like trying just, it got super weird and super crazy. Mm. And I was really, and I also wanted to be alone. I didn't want people to see me like that, which was really not smart at all Mm. because I could have easily taken my life or um, done something to overdose. You know, I had access to things that I could have easily overdosed um, if I, if I wanted to. And there was definitely times that I thought about it, that it would be easier just not to come back, you know, just, Hey, I went down here, I tried and it just didn't work out. Wow. 
Yeah. So, okay. You, you're in such crazy pain. You're at, you're doing the Mexico thing. You're trying to, what, okay. So what was the treatments they were doing? And then what brought you to, you know, the most crazy regime of <laughs> the most crazy, intense healing experience of your life? Like from that point, you know, what did they do in Mexico? And then how did you discover? Yeah. Yash Paul and everything in Costa Rica. Yeah, they got. Uh, so at that point, they recommended I do Ibogaine. I really wanted to do ayahuasca. And I'd been listening to Aubrey Marcus and some different things. And uh, it's cool that we got connected through him and through that whole mastermind. But uh, my system, you know, I couldn't do ayahuasca. I had all these contraindicated things. So say, hey, you know, Ibogaine this and that. I looked into it. I was like, Whoa, I'm not sure I want to do that. But eventually I surrendered to it. I did the Ibogaine, which got me off of all the opiates. I was on hundred, 150 milligrams a day of opiates. And at that point, Ibogaine was uh, a way for me to get off of that. And I did after the Ibogaine, they tested me again because the director was convinced that I had Lyme disease. She works with a lot of Lyme patients. She had it herself. And there was just too many things connecting for her. But all the tests came back negative. After the Ibogain, Lyme disease came up positive. Because sometimes it has to be disrupted in order for it to be present oh, in your man. system. And so that's when they were like, boom, this is what's going on, man. And they knew it was in my nervous system because... After I went off of that, you know, I had, I began is no joke. And I went into a psychosis because there was some medication in my system. There was a mix up. I think one of the doctors and another, they didn't know I was transitioning off of straight opioids to tramadol and tramadol. And I began, you can have some really bad reactions and I went crazy. I went haywire and I had some deep psychosis off and on for several weeks after the experience. And, um, you know, unfortunately Steph had to bear witness to a lot of that where I would just shatter on the ground, crying, sobbing for hours, pounding the ground, punching the walls, like in this apartment in Mexico, I was holed up for several months you know, I remember my kids coming on my birthday and I sat in the living room for like 10 or 15 minutes and I just went in the room and just cried for four or five hours. I could not handle being around. My nervous system was so raw wow. and was so ragged. I couldn't handle being around them. And I, I wanted to be with them so badly because I needed to feel, I would post like pictures of them and notes from them around the apartment when I was really suicidal to, to keep some hope in my head to stay alive. And I, I was looking at this morning on my notepad, I had a list of reasons to stay alive. I made lists of reasons to stay alive, like all the time. And I would read them and be like, you need it. And one of the reasons to stay alive was to, you need to, you're going to come through this and you're going to share this story and you're going to help people. 
that was one of the big things that really got me through it was being able to say, Hey, if I can do this, you can too. Because everyone has their own story and their own thing that they're going through. Mm. And no matter, some people go, well, my story's not as crazy or as hard as yours. It doesn't matter when you're in it and it's your story. Yeah. That's the deepest, darkest, most challenging place you've ever been. And you've ever experienced. Oh, it doesn't matter what someone else's story is. <laughs> it, if it feels like a 10 out of 10, it's a 10 out of 10. Don't compare it to somebody else's. Yeah, totally. So I went through that process. Uh, we went to Envision in Costa Rica. We came back. We went into the pandemic. I got into, uh, when we went into the lockdown, we actually moved to Mexico to be close to the clinic, but then the clinic was kind of shut down. They couldn't get supplies. They couldn't get doctors. And my health, I, my health had improved tremendously, but then it just deteriorated again. And one year ago, right now, I was laying on a bed in an apartment, barely able to move, barely able to function, thinking I was going to die again and having so much anxiety and pain. I didn't want to live. And I had got, I went into a really deep three or four month bout of being suicidal and having deep anxiety and deep pain. And that's where I started just the daily rituals, the morning, like, Hey, you like, man, you've been coached and trained on so much stuff. You know what to do. Nobody can do it for you. And I had lost all the, I didn't have my specialist. I didn't have my trainer. I didn't have the sauna. I didn't have my ice baths. I couldn't get into the stuff. So I had to like come up with something that I could do on my own in my own room on my own in my own neighborhood. And so I went forward with that plan. We went, um, and after about four or five months of that, we sold our house with the intention of moving to Costa Rica. We traveled the country. We joined fit for service. We went to Sedona and, um, and then December 1st, we moved down here and I was still in a lot of pain, but it wasn't as severe. I wasn't crippled all the time. I had a daily routine. I had a sauna, I had a hyperbaric chamber. And so I was doing things that I could keep going, but I was, I was on tramadol again. I was on Kratom, which is like a Southeast Asian tea leaf or a leaf that helps with pain. And I was deeply addicted to those, but compared to being on, you know, straight opiates all the time, it was a much better life. And I was like, I just had this deep calling to go to Costa Rica and I couldn't explain it to anybody. Steph, Steph got it. Steph was the only person that got it. I had it too. You had it. You, and when you try to explain it, you're like, how do you explain faith? Or how do you explain like this deep sense of knowing that if I go to this place, something's going to transpire, something's going to change. Yeah. And I have no idea what it is. And as soon as we got here, things started changing. I started meeting people. My good buddy, Alex Fredericks introduced me to Dr. Bear Walker, who's a naturopath, a general MD, seventh generation medicine man. We met at, in December at a, at a dinner and he spent several hours and he's treated Lyme patients forever. And he's just like, Paul, listen, man, you spent a year going to Mexico probably over six months living in Mexico, 
getting treatment six, eight hours a day, being hooked up to 10 or 15 IV bags, lasers, hundreds and hundreds of injections, ozone, stem cell, PRP, like dozens and dozens of therapies. You've done a lot of work and you're better, but a boga has been known to cure Lyme disease. And I believe with where you're at in your journey, it could be the final leg of the journey in your healing. Thanks everybody. Stay tuned for part two coming next week. We'll get into PJ's story and the craziness continues. Love you guys. If you guys did get value from that, share that with a friend, leave us a review and we'll see you on part two. Much love.